All right, good morning, everybody. So this is our second week in our early years series where we're looking at four events from Jesus' boyhood. We just celebrated Jesus' birth at Christmas time, and so it feels appropriate to talk about the early years of his life. And uh, the event that we're looking at this morning is a, a one that I'm sure is familiar to all of us, which is the visit of the Magi. Or as some translations might put it, the visit of the wise men. Now you might be thinking, isn't it a little late to be talking about this? I mean, Christmas was, I think, 18 days ago now, and uh, it feels like spring outside. So, you know, we all know from our nativity scenes and from our Christmas pageants that the wise men showed up on the night that Jesus was born Uh, They came a little while after the shepherds, and they glided in serenely with their jewelry glistening in the moonlight and and jingling as they walked. And of course, they they offered their gifts to the baby Jesus as he laid in the manger. But that common image, as it is depicted in that picture there, uh, isn't actually in the Bible, believe it or not. We don't know exactly when the Magi visited Jesus, uh, but in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, it's clear that they came after Jesus was born, not the night that he was born. Uh, They probably came during the day, not during the night, and they visited Jesus at a house, not at a stable. And to burst our bubbles even further, uh, we, we actually don't know how many of them there were. You know, the most famous song about the wise men is, We Three Kings. Uh, But the Bible doesn't say anywhere that there were three of them. Most people, uh, I think that tradition developed because the Bible does say that there were three gifts that they brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so in artistic depictions, it's convenient to have three magi holding those three different gifts. But the Bible doesn't actually say how many of them there were. The song also calls them we three kings, but the Bible doesn't say anything about them being kings. It calls them magi, and magi were not kings. But what is a magi? Well, magi was a title used by people from the lands east of Jerusalem, so people like the Babylonians, the the Persians, the Medes, and it was used to describe people who were considered to have special knowledge. And in a place like Babylon, that could mean a wide range of things. That could mean uh, a doctor. It could mean a sorcerer. It could mean someone who was highly educated by the standards of the time, or it could be somebody who claimed to have supernatural power, so somebody like a dream interpreter, or a fortune teller, or an astrologer. Now, some translations call the Magi wise men, right? I think in popular language, we're more likely to call them wise men today than magi. And that title, wise men, that's understandable because in their homeland, they would have been regarded as people who had exceptional knowledge, special knowledge, whether that knowledge was how to cure an illness or how to predict the future. But I actually don't think that wise men is a very good translation for magi because when we use that phrase, wise men, we're implying that the Jews would have regarded them as wise, or that God would have regarded them as wise. Um, But for the Jews, a person could only be called wise 
if they were the kind of person who was obedient to God and pursuing righteousness, right? And from what we know about Magi, they were often involved in activities that God prohibited. Um, so things like sorcery, witchcraft, divination, astrology. So wise men isn't a great translation. In Babylon, the Magi might have been considered wise, but we shouldn't assume that they were truly wise, objectively wise. In fact, there's only one other place in the New Testament that uses that word magi. It's in Acts chapter 13. And there, the word is translated as sorcerer, and the person it's referring to is called a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. <laughs> so clearly we can't assume that all magi are wise, right? Some magi were probably wise by by our standards, by God's standards, but many were also engaged in activities that would have been prohibited by God's law. And yet, in the passage that we're about to read, these magi come and they bow down and pay respects to Jesus. And if that sounds strange or ironic to you, knowing what we know about magi, it should. It's actually part of the whole point of this story. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Matthew 2 starting in verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you for this chance to look at your word together. God, I pray that you would open up our, our ears uh, to hear whatever it is that you want to say to us, and open up our hearts to be able to receive it. Uh, we believe that your words have power, and we pray that you would uh, give us insight into them as we, as we hear them, Lord. Uh, may your Holy Spirit be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So, Again, notice, the wise men come after Jesus is born, right? Not the night that he's born, after he's born. We don't know exactly when they came. My best guess is after the presentation at the temple, which we looked at last week. Remember, Jesus was about 40 days old then. I say that because if the Magi came before the presentation at the temple, you would think that all that gold that they gave Jesus would have meant that Mary and Joseph weren't poor anymore. Right? But we know that when they went to the temple, they were too poor to be able to afford a lamb for the sacrifice. So it must have been sometime after the presentation at the temple uh, that the wise men showed up. Continuing on, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, if you're anything like me, you're wondering, how did these magi know that this king of the Jews had been born? And of course, it says in there something about a, an, an event in the stars, a celestial event. But I mean, even, even more than the event itself, how did they know to be looking for that? Right? Why were they thinking about the king of the Jews? Why was that even on their radar at all? Now, we don't know for certain what the answer to that question is, but I want to propose a possibility that I think is, is pretty interesting. About 600 years before this, Babylon besieged Jerusalem and took many Israelites from Jerusalem to Babylon to live in exile. Uh, if you were here at all this summer, you know we did a study on the book of Daniel, and that whole story is recorded in there about the Jews going into exile. And, of course, one of the Israelites who was taken into exile was Daniel, who would go on to be a leader in Babylon and a prophet uh, in Babylon. And one of the subjects of his prophecies was the coming Messiah who would come and deliver the Jews. And some of the, the prophecies had specific timetables in them uh, about when that was supposed to happen. And so it's possible that Daniel and others like him influenced the Babylonians to be expecting the birth of a special Jewish king. And specifically, we have reason to think that Daniel would have influenced the Magi of Babylon. Because, listen to this, book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 48, the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Isn't that interesting? And the book of Daniel describes these wise men as being people like the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, the sorcerers of Babylon. So this shows us that 600 years before Jesus was born, there were Jews who were influencing magi, right? And specifically, there was a Jew who was influencing magi who was prophesying about the Messiah. And I think that this should serve to remind us of something important, which is it is impossible for us to know how much our actions now are going to affect the generations after us. If you share the gospel with someone today, if you teach someone something from the word of God or you know, remind somebody of something, that could still be having consequences 600 years from now. We need to believe that God is weaving a beautiful tapestry out of our lives. And we can catch glimpses of what that looks like through the story of Scripture, and specifically through a story like this about the Magi. Seeds were planted when the Jews were in exile that bore fruit 600 years later when the Magi came to bow down to Jesus. You know, maybe if the Jews had never gone into exile, the wise men wouldn't be part of our nativity scenes. Who knows? 
Now, why did Matthew include this story in his gospel? What does this story show us? Well, I believe that there's at least three big ideas that this story presents to us powerfully. So if you're taking notes, there's some spots on your outline for this. The first big idea is this. People who you wouldn't expect will come to Jesus. People who you wouldn't expect will come to Jesus. One of the one of the themes that comes up over and over again throughout the birth narratives of Jesus, we've been talking about this, is irony, which means what you expect to happen is not what actually ends up happening. And that's true with this visit, visit from the Magi, because you would expect certain people to be excited about Jesus' arrival and certain people not to care. And in the story of the Magi, the people who you would expect to care don't, and the people who you don't expect to care do, right? You would expect the king of the Jews to be excited about the Messiah arriving, King Herod, but he's not excited. He claims that he wants to go and worship him, but that's all just a ploy, as we're going to find out next week, to find out where Jesus is so he can kill him. Uh, We're told very clearly what Herod's real reaction to the news of Jesus' arrival is, which is that he is disturbed, Why is he disturbed? He's disturbed because Jesus is a threat to his power, right? And not only is he disturbed, we're told that all of Jerusalem is disturbed with him. Now, that doesn't mean that every single lay person in Jerusalem was disturbed, but Jerusalem was the center of the religious authorities, right? So what that's saying is that the religious establishment at the time was disturbed about the birth of Jesus. Why? Because, again, it was a threat to their power, So again, irony. These are the kinds of people that you would expect to be celebrating the birth of the Messiah, but they're not. And then, of course, on the other hand, the people who we wouldn't expect to worship Jesus are eager to do it. Now, we don't know exactly where the Magi traveled from. We're told that they came from the east. But get this, if they were coming from the region of Babylon, that was a 900-mile journey. Over field and fountain, more and mountain. That would have taken months. Now, Herod and the religious leaders, they just had 10 miles to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They didn't go, but the Magi went. And of course, distance isn't the only reason that we wouldn't expect the Magi to come and worship Jesus. The Magi were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And As we already established, they were magi, which means they were probably engaged in activities that were prohibited by the law of God. We know from the text that they were into astrology, at the very least. Now, if God says, when the stars align in such and such a way, that will be a sign to you, then if we look for that sign in the stars, that's not a sin. But when it talks about people practicing astrology, it's talking about more than that. It's talking about trying to divine from the stars what's going to happen in the future, you know, like horoscopes and that sort of thing. So when the text says that these magi came to worship in Jesus, it's kind of like saying that three psychics went to visit Jesus or, you know, three fortune tellers or three horoscope writers. That is not what we would expect, right? A reversal of expectations. Now, just just to be clear, okay, this story is not telling us that divination and sorcery and astrology are okay with God. In fact, God's clear in the New Testament that 
he still wants us to steer clear of those things. Even though we are not bound by the law uh, the way the Israelites were, uh, those things are still off limits. They're not healthy. They're not good. But what this story is telling us is that if someone is involved in that kind of thing, it doesn't mean they're not ready to come and worship Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're not open to the truth. Jesus came to save sinners, and sometimes the people who we might think of as the biggest sinners are actually the ones who are most sensitive to the light that's leading them to Jesus, just as the Magi were sensitive to the star that was leading them to Christ. Sometimes the people that we think are most far away from Jesus are actually the ones who are most inclined to travel the distance to get to him, just like the, the Magi. And that distance might be a cultural dis distance, it might be a psychological distance, but what this story is telling us is you'd be surprised at how many people are willing to come to Jesus. So that's the first big idea in this story. People who you wouldn't expect to come to Jesus will. Second big idea that this story presents powerfully is that Jesus is meant for the whole world. Jesus is meant for the whole world. When this story tells us that foreign pagans came and bowed down to Jesus, it's being very clear, Jesus is not for the Jews. And this story is only included in, in Matthew's gospel, and I think that was very intentional because Matthew was writing primarily to Jews. It's the most Jewish of the four gospels. But Matthew thought it was very important to make it very clear this this Messiah, this Jesus, he's for everybody. He's not just for the Jews. Now, I realize this is a really simple idea. You know, it's bedrock Christianity. Jesus is for the whole world. Why even bother to, to say this? But I think it's important for us to be reminded of this in the 21st century. Because we live in a time when many people want to say that the perspective on religion that is progressive is the idea that all religions are equally valid. Uh, in other words, it's the perspective that the way of looking at the world that reflects healthy progress is religious pluralism. All paths lead to God. And so by that logic, Jesus is great for the people who believe in him, people who belong to the Judeo-Christian tradition, but, you know, the non-Christian world doesn't really need to worry about him. They don't need to be introduced to him. Um, that, that kind of perspective is very common today. But what I want us to see is that if we know the story of the Bible, that's actually more of a, a regressive view than a progressive view, right? Uh, it's not a moving forward, it's a moving backward, because in the Old Testament, there's a focus on God's relationship with the nation of Israel, right? But in the New Testament, there's this expansion outward where it becomes very clear that what's been going on with God's relationship with Israel isn't just for Israel, but it's for the whole world, right? We see that in this story of the Magi, and we see it later when uh, the apostles go out to share the gospel with the Gentiles, so if we start saying things like, well, the story of Israel and Jesus, it's just one way to God for the people who, who believe in it, we're actually saying something that denies what the New Testament tries very hard to teach us, uh, which is that what God is doing through Jesus is for 
the whole world. It's for people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, even pagan magi astrologers. And it's not enough to just say, well, we'll just, you know, God is just happy for these pagan magi astrologers to find God through their astrology and through their sorcery and that sort of thing. No, they need to come and bow down to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to Jesus. Finally, the third big idea I want us to recognize in this story is that Jesus' wisdom is greater than the world's wisdom. Jesus' wisdom is greater than the world's wisdom. Remember, if there was one quality that made a magi a magi, it was that they had special knowledge whether that knowledge was religious or medical or occult. Uh, We might say that the Magi were like the academic elites of their time. These were the experts. These were the professors. These were the kind of people who would teach classes, the kind of people who were seen as having insights into uh, the riddles of life and the mysteries of the world. And yet in this story, these people are coming and they're bowing down before Jesus. When people first read Matthew's gospel, they wouldn't just see magi bowing down to Jesus. They would see the world's wisdom bowing down to Jesus because that's what the magi represent. Every generation in every culture has its wise men and women. Uh, Some of them are politicians. Some of them are talk show hosts. Some of them write self-help books and and rules for living. Uh, Some of them promote health and wellness. Some of them produce podcasts. Some of them write philosophical tweets that people like and share but don't actually understand. Uh, And and some of what they have to say is good. Some of it is, is worth our time and attention, and some of it isn't. But however worthwhile a lot of that stuff might be, none of it is going to surpass the wisdom that's revealed through Jesus. That's so important for us to remember. You know, before we read another self-help book, we should stop and ask ourselves, have I really studied the Sermon on the Mount yet? You know, have I really gotten the Beatitudes into my bones, you know? Is that the prism through which I view the world and my life and what is right and wrong? Because if we can't honestly say that, I would say, wait, stop. Before you read that other self-help book, start digging into that, you know? Or at the very least, study that while you read the self-help book, you know? The wisdom that Jesus offers us doesn't always match the wisdom of the the modern magi of today. In fact, often it doesn't. But that's okay. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You know, human wisdom would say that the idea of God being born as a baby, that's foolishness, especially foolishness in the time when it happened. Uh, Human wisdom would say that we should seek happiness, which is often a very superficial form of happiness, that we should seek wealth and power, not the kingdom of God. Human wisdom often says that we should seek vengeance, 
rather than peace. Human wisdom says that we should worry about things like food and drink and clothing. And and Jesus says, trust God with that. The wisdom of God often sounds like foolishness, but that foolishness is wiser than any human wisdom, wiser than any expert, wiser than any magi. And so like these magi did, we should bow down before that wisdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you offer to us through Jesus a wisdom that surpasses everything else. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender to that wisdom, to know that wisdom, to live in the light of it, Lord. Father, I thank you for this reminder that you are for the whole world and that people are drawn to you who we would never expect, Lord. God, I pray that we would be sensitive to the light that draws us to Christ, and that we also would bow down like the Magi. In Jesus' name, amen.